Hi, I'm Ryan Becker, and you're listening to the Rock Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church Official Sermon Archive. You can find more information about our church at www.rockhillsdachurch.org. We hope by listening to this message that you are encouraged and challenged in your walk with Christ. With that, let's jump right in to Luke chapter 10. And in Luke 10, Jesus sends out the 72 disciples. He sends them out in pairs to every town and every place. And once they are done with this, they return, they share with him their experience, they share with Jesus, hey, this is what we did, this is what we encountered. And Jesus afterwards rejoices over the success of this, and he's excited. And immediately after this, in verse 25, this is where we're going to be, verse 25, Jesus is approached and this seems to be a theme for Jesus. Every time he does something, every time something good happens, or any time really anything happens, period, someone always shows up to test him or to question him or at least to challenge him. And this situation is no different. Verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? See, what Jesus does here is it's, it's not, I don't want us to see this as, as something super clever that Jesus does here. This is actually pretty standard for Jewish communication in the academic circle. If someone asks you a question and you're a teacher or you're a professional, the way that you respond typically is you would ask another question. And you go down this road of discovery by asking these questions. So Jesus, and almost every time he does this, Jesus answers questions with more questions. If you read Job, Job asks him all these questions about the book of Job. And when God shows up at the end, he asks him, well, where were you? And what did you do? And how do you do this? And, and it's always questions with questions. So this is standard for him. And so what Jesus is actually doing by doing this is establishing his legitimacy by knowing how to play the game. So he says, what is in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the lawyer desiring to justify himself, and I love this. This indicates to me, in verse 29, desiring to justify himself, this says to me that Jesus actually had a specific tone when he responded. When he said, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. It's this tone of, of it's almost implicit of saying, you're not doing this. You can do this better. Do this and you will live. Not you're doing this already, you're okay, you will, cont you will continue living, but do this now. Start doing this. And so the lawyer's like, wait, I already do this. I'm a good Jewish man, and, I, and I'm a good believer, and I'm a good follower. This is what I already do. So he says, desiring to justify himself, he says to Jesus, so who is my neighbor? And Jesus replies with this famous story. And I think, I actually believe this to be one of the most misunderstood parables that Jesus gives. And we will explore why. Verse 30, Jesus replies, A man was going down from Jerusalem 
to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, or two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you have to spend, I will repay you when I come back. And so Jesus ends this story, and he says, Okay, verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And I'm going to stop right there before I respond with, before we get to the lawyer's answer. Because there's a couple things that I notice from this story. The first is this, especially when this is taught to kids, but I see it taught to adults as well. It's one of the main tenets of our faith, which is taking care of the poor, the needy, the hurt, and the broken. And so we walk away from this story with that teaching in harmony with the rest of scripture, and we say that man who's beaten on the side of the road, that's the person who's our neighbor, and that's the person we're supposed to help. In other words, we can be a neighbor to them, and they a neighbor to us. And we walk away with a story to say we need to help those who are clearly in need of help. But what I want to suggest to you in this story is Jesus is not giving a teaching with the intent that he's speaking to the entire church throughout history. In other words, Jesus is not trying to tell a timeless truth here for the sake of it being an objective, timeless truth. He is talking with a lawyer from the Jewish faith who has very specific biases and a very specific culture, and he's challenging that culture. In other words, this is a one-on-one -on -one interaction that we simply observe from afar and can learn a timeless truth from. But make no mistake, Jesus is teaching the lawyer and it is, we are but a third party to this conversation. I'm going to give you a brief, very brief, like the cliff notes of the cliff notes of Israelite history to help you understand this a little bit more. When Israel sp split into the southern and northern, or the, the southern and the northern kingdoms, both were taken into captivity several times. The southern kingdom was usually taken captiv into captivity by Babylon. They were usually conquered by Babylon. The north, by Assyria. And what would happen is the southern kingdom, when they were allowed to return by Babylon, usually Babylon would say, okay, go. Just go, and we'll leave you be. But the northern kingdom, whenever Assyria or these other nations would allow them to come back, they usually came with them. And so what we saw in the northern kingdom, what you see in the northern kingdom is this mix of culture, religion, and race. And you see God's people who were a part of Israel mixing with these other cultures that had conquered them. While the southern kingdom, largely because Babylon would leave them alone when they were allowed to return, the southern kingdom would preserve its own culture. 
the southern kingdom would preserve its own religion and the southern kingdom would stay with its own people. And so the northern kingdom became, as, as it was mixed and mixed and mixed, they became what, what is now referred to in Jesus' time as the Samaritans. And they were referred to as a mixed breed, basically. And so the idea here was that these people lost our culture, these people tainted our culture, these people are no longer purely God's chosen people, but we are. We can't talk with them, we can't talk about them in any positive light. In fact, there's nothing positive about these people. They are disgrace, they are not people we associate with, and they are not people we talk about. And what ended up happening was in a, in a, what was probably honest intention to preserve Jewish and Israelite culture, instead became the seed for deep-seated hatred towards another group of people. Over generations and generations, the original intent, the original good intent of preserving culture was exchanged for this actual and literal condescension towards the Samaritans. And so for Jesus to tell the lawyer that a Samaritan is the one that does good instead of the two good Jews, well, you don't talk about Samaritans in a positive light. They are not capable of doing the same kind of righteous deeds that we are because they are not chosen by God the same way that we are. What Jesus is doing here is attacking the very core of Jewish identity because the core of Jewish and Israelite identity in this time period was one of we are separate from. It was defined by how we are separate from them, not how we are like. And Jesus is attacking the core of that by making the Samaritan the hero of the story, by making the hated man the hero of the story. And so the lawyer responds, when Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. There's such a deep-seated hatred. There's such a deep-seated understanding that these people are lesser that he can't even say the Samaritan. Had it been the Levite? Had it been the priest, he would have said, oh, the priest, oh, the Levite. He would have said it, no problem. But when it comes to the Samaritan, because there is this belief that's been ingrained from birth to now, that these people are incapable of being as good as us. He can't even say, he can't even admit that it was the Samaritan. Instead, he says, the one that showed him mercy. So Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. What Jesus just said was, you go and be like the very people that you despise so much. See, this was a teaching on the lawyer. This wasn't a teaching for you to understand that you need to help the poor, the needy, the destitute, those that are broken. What Jesus is teaching the lawyer is that your neighbor is the person that you've been conditioned to dislike, the person that you've been taught to hate, the person that you see as lesser or the person that you have lower expectations on, that's the person you're called to love as you do yourself. 
And this cuts so deep at the lawyer that he doesn't have a word to say afterwards. He's so angry. In fact, if Jesus was probably, if Jesus was standing in a crowd as the lawyer approached him, if anyone else heard this, they probably walked away as well. Because this teaching is so against what they've been ingrained and taught to believe explicitly about the Samaritans. They say there's no way they can be the hero of a story. This is hogwash. This is not okay. And this is ridiculous. But for Jesus, it's very, very clear. And in fact, you see this throughout the New Testament as well in Ephesians where it says Jesus has torn down the dividing wall. What Jesus is doing here is setting up part of his kingdom to say, look, in Christ and in, in this kingdom that I am setting up, there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no, there is no slave or master. There is no male nor female. In other words, all these dividing lines that we use to separate ourselves no longer have a place here. And he starts and the very teachings he gives to these individuals. And here he's begun setting that up. And in today's culture, I think this story has very, very, very <laughs> profound implications for how we deal with a lot of the current events that are happening. When we talk about Charlottesville, when we talk about white supremacists, when we talk about Islamophobia, when we talk about a lot of the ways that we interact with other faiths, when we talk about the way we interact with other races, I think that this has very profound implications. And this is going to be a little tough, and you might disagree with me this morning, and that's okay. It's a journey. When Charlottesville happened, when a lot of these moments of police brutality and otherwise have happened, there's been this cry out from minorities to say, hey, things aren't fixed like, like we all thought they were. There's still some really deep-seated problems here. And they said, look, regardless of whether you think the police brutality was actual brutality or if it was justified, or regardless of what you think or perceive these events as being, there's still a deep-seated problem of racism. And they're saying, it's not okay. And there's this whole movement of well-meaning Christians and otherwise to say, well, no, things are, things are much better, and we have rights now, and all of the civil rights movement was successful, and things are okay, and they're not as bad as you think they are. Because racism doesn't exist in the same overt ways that it did 50 and 60 years ago. But that doesn't mean it's not still a problem. I want to talk to you today about two very different forms of racism. We apply this as well in the way that we regard other faiths. We regard this as well with how we view just other people in general. So while this is seated in the argument of racism or the topic of racism, it extends beyond. There are two different types of racism. There's, there's more, but the main two that I want to focus on today. There's explicit hatred. That's marching, that's burning crosses, that's explicit hatred, one that you're unafraid to stand behind, and one that you are expressing very, very obviously and vocally. It's very conspicuous. The other is implicit expectation. It is implicit 
expectation of another's life. Now let me give you an example of that. It's anecdotal, but I just want you to understand how I've seen this play out in my own life. A year ago, while I was your pastor, this, this just happened. I was Before I started as the official head pastor here and I was still living up in the Charlotte area in my old apartment complex. My old apartment complex was, uh, I would argue it's probably a middle class apartment complex and I remember driving through one day, rent for a two bedroom apartment is like $1,200 there. And I'm driving through one day and I look to my left as I'm going over a speed bump and I see this man on his balcony on the first floor in what I knew was a two bedroom apartment building because they tend to kind of congregate a lot of these, a lot of the different styles in the same building. I knew it was a two bedroom apartment building and so I knew he was in there and I look over and there's this black man just hanging out. And the first thought that came into my mind and I hate that it happened. The first thought that came into my mind was wow, he did really well for himself. In other words, in my heart, there was this implicit expectation that people of this color had to either do more or work harder to get the same thing that I had had. And it wasn't something that was ever explicitly taught to me. Instead, here's how it was. When I grew up in white suburbia in uh, just outside of Orlando, I was taught, uh, and I would see this in the way we would do community service projects at school, that we would always go to the other side of the train tracks to help people. And when you went to the other side of the train tracks, and you saw those broken down and beaten down homes, you typically saw only one type of person. And so there's this, there's this thing as you do this more and more, and as you, as you watch movies where you see gang violence, or you watch movies where they take place in the slums, you see the same type of person being depicted. And when this happens over years and years and years, it gets ingrained into your system that you have very implicit means you're not even able to express them necessarily and you don't even mean to have them. You have implicit expectation that this person who looks this way or behaves this way is going to have this kind of lifestyle. For the lawyer, he had both. He had an explicit hatred, he had an explicit thing that said, look, these Samaritans are not like us, they are not as good as us, they are not as chosen as us and they've squandered that calling. But then he had the implicit expectation that said, and Samaritans can do no good. So Jesus challenges both of those by putting the Samaritan as the hero. And the problem that we see when we talk about white privilege or we talk about all these other things is for you and me, chances are you and I don't have that explicit hatred towards another group. And I would commend us for that. But chances are as well, that you and I probably have some implicit expectations when we look at other people. Sitting on an airplane, maybe, and seeing someone of a fair complexion and tensing up a tiny bit, even involuntarily. Implicit expectations. It's not from a place of hatred, and in fact, in many cases, it's from a place of self-protection, of self-defense to be on guard and to be watching because you've been exposed to these patterns. And these implicit expectations are some of the hardest to fight. Because how do you fight something that you don't even realize is there? 
Now listen, I'm not trying to call you a racist. The argument that I'm making this morning is that racism has affected all of our lives, whether we like it or not. And even if we've never been a part of an overt and explicit hatred demonstration, doesn't mean that there aren't certain expectations that might be in our minds. Like I said, for the lawyer, he had both, and Jesus challenges both. And here's what I love about this. When I tell you, at the end of this message, when I tell you to love the person that you've been conditioned to not love, or you've been taught not to love, or there's this desire in your heart, I don't want to love that person anymore. I'm tired of forgiving that person. I'm tired of treating that person with dignity and respect when they won't do the same for me. I'm tired of it, and I hate it, and I'm sick of it, and I'm done with it. When I tell you that, and then I say, that's the person you need to love, chances are you already know who that person is. Chances are I don't need to tell you, and you, don't, you and I don't need to have a conversation about who you need to love better. Chances are you know exactly who it is. This teaching tends to be pretty critical from an introspective point of view. Now look, we can get into arguments about well, there are patterns, and there's crimes, and there's all these different statistics. And I want to answer that with, amazingly, a quote from a comedian who's the farthest thing from a good Christian ever, Louis C.K. Louis C.K. is a very, very crass comedian. I actually, I find myself, I've heard a few of his stand-up jokes and performances, and, and I often think if I wasn't a Christian, I might think a lot of the same way that he does about things. He's very cynical and sarcastic the way that I am, uh, but he's a lot more nihilistic. But he had a show called Louie. I think it's still running. Maybe it's not. And in season two episode, I believe it's the first episode of the season, he's having dinner with his daughters, and he has one slice of, of this mango dessert left, and he gives it to his oldest daughter. And his youngest daughter comes up to him and says, Daddy, I want, a, I want a mango pop. It was basically a, a, like a frozen mango treat on a fork. It wasn't really a popsicle, but you know how kids are. He says, Daddy, I want, I, want a mango, I want a mango pop. She got one. I should get one, too. It's not fair. And he says, well, life's not fair. Deal with it. And he's trying to teach her, yeah, okay, I don't have enough. There was only one, so I give it to her. You don't get any. That's life. His daughter is continuing to argue that, no, it's not fair. No, I should get something. Even if it's not the mango pop, I should get something. And Louis bends down and puts his, puts his hands on her shoulders. And he says, look, the only time that you look into your neighbor's bowl is to make sure they have enough. You don't look in your neighbor's bowl to see if you have as much as they do. The only time you look in your neighbor's bowl is to see if they have enough. And chances are, you are not the person and I am not the person that dictates what's enough for someone else. In the same way that I'm sure you would argue with me that I am not the one that determines how much respect is appropriate when I talk with you. You are the person that determines how much respect is appropriate. 
in the same way when we talk about racism, when we talk about equality and equity, when we talk about faith relations, in the same way, you and I are not the ones that determine what is enough for someone else. And in matters of race relations and in, in, in these topics, I, I actually think it's a joint process. It is a conversation that happens. But that conversation doesn't happen by assuming that they have enough or that they have more. That conversation starts from the place of, look, you've got a bowl and I've got a bowl. Let's make sure that this is fair for both of us. And if you want to argue with me that, well, they are looking into our bowls and they're, they're trying to get enough and they're trying to be, take the argument of the little girl, you've missed the entire point. You've missed the entire point if we go down that road. Every analogy breaks down somewhere. I don't know what implicit expectations you have on others' lives. I don't know what they are. Only you and God can figure that out for your life. I don't know if you've acted on them in the past without realizing it. But here's, here's what I want to tell you today, and here's what I want to offer you today. I don't want us to walk around like we're on eggshells trying not to crack them because we don't want to offend someone or hurt someone. That's not true Christianity. True Christianity is walking confidently and when we trip, we say, hey, probably shouldn't trip on that again. Lord, give me the strength to understand that this is not the step I need to take next time. And as these incidents happen, and as these moments happen, that we say, oh, here was an, here was an incidence of implicit expectation that I had, of lower expectations that I had. Okay, I, need, I now know how to identify it. I now know what this is, and I can now get rid of it. I can now address it and deal with it. And when it comes to loving your neighbor, for the lawyer, it was the Samaritans. For us, it is the person or the people that you don't want to love, that you've been taught not to love, or that you've been taught are not as deserving of love. It's the person you've been conditioned, whether it's because of them or because of your fault the person that you've been conditioned to no longer love, that is the person that Jesus is calling you today to say, I'm sorry, and I want to love you better.